For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. 700 years before Christ came, Isaiah prophesied a most amazing thing. Not only does he tell us about the virgin birth, he goes on to predict the exact location where Jesus will spend most of his ministry, as well as describing Jesus' character and purpose in coming. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, No More Gloom. All right, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 9 for a very... A familiar passage, a prophecy about Christmas 700 years prior to Jesus appearing. Isaiah chapter 9. There we go. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our great salvation. We thank you that it wasn't an afterthought or last-minute thing with you, that you had it planned before the earth was spinning. We thank you, Lord, for this great love and help us to hear something fresh and new that encourages us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're anything like me, you can't stand this weather, all right? I do not like gray, I do not like overcast, I do not like dark and dismal, I do not like gloomy. Um, And this kind of weather, I I don't mind when it rains, when it makes up its mind and just there's a great storm coming, I I hope, you know, nothing goes wrong with that, but I, I enjoy a good storm, but that just days without sunshine, it just, you know, there's just something about the absence of sunshine and blue skies that makes you a little depressed. How many of you are kind of like that? How many of you don't know what I'm talking about? (laughs) All right, very good. Most of you agree. Well, uh, gloomy is a great description of really when you're feeling down or downcast or without hope. Um, Here in chapter 9 of Isaiah, Isaiah is going to use the, the adjective gloomy to describe life in Israel in the 8th century uh, before Christ. Dark, dismal, uh, despairing, uh, but not in reference to the weather, of course, but it was concerning men's souls, the spiritual condition of God's people. You know, you could sum up what it was like to live in Israel in the 700s there before uh, Christ appeared with one great word, gloom. That's what it was like. But it's in this terrible condition of uh, gloom and doom that Isaiah is going to bust out some really cool Christmas carols. Uh, He's going to lay out the most revealing prophecy about Christmas and about Christ uh, that exists in the entire Bible. This one passage is perhaps the most uh, inclusive and telltale uh, scripture about uh, who Jesus is and about his coming and his purpose in coming. And so uh, it it was happy news here in the middle of gloom and doom here in chapter 9. The gloom wasn't going to last forever. Uh, Someone was coming to save the day and a most unlikely hero at that. So I'm going to read 1 through 9 and then 1 through 7. I should say, and then we'll go back over it. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, 
You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. Well, let's take a look at this. Let's go through it. Okay, let's take a look at the first two verses here. It'll be projected on the screen. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress in the past. He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned. So if you're taking notes, number one, a light has dawned. The light dawns. Now, it's not just an ordinary light. Uh, it's the light of the world. Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 12, he proclaimed that he was the light of the world. And Jesus never made a, a claim without showing that he had the power to back that claim up. And so after he said he was the light of the world, then he healed a man who was born blind, who was in total darkness, uh, showing that he had the right to make that claim. Psalm 36 and verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Just beautiful words. And in John chapter 1 and verse 4, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And so this revelation was given to Isaiah 700 years before the light of the world would come through the, the virgin womb of Mary uh, there in that very region of the world. And so just an amazing thing. Uh, it was such a, uh, a real and intense revelation uh, for Isaiah that he puts it in, uh, in the past. He says, it's already happened. It's a done deal. He says, in the future, Galilee... Um, the, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's already. Even though, you know, let me show you a chart. Recognize this? Well, Isaiah, if you're a regular Wednesday night person, you'll recognize we've been working down the kings here in 2 Kings, and we stopped at chapter 14. But if we made it to chapter 15, you would have had Isaiah prophesying to Ahaz. And, and so here, Ahaz, it's the time of Ahaz, particularly hor horrible king, and uh, in the northern uh, state of Israel, you have... Uh, Pekah and Hosea. These are the, the ones that we're dealing with now. It's about 722 uh, uh, BC, and times are terrible. So uh, the first word is really important in the text that says, nevertheless, nevertheless. So uh, what we need to do is find out what was going on when he prophesied about the light of the world coming. And so you, you can go back to the chart we're at the end of the road for Israel. Israel's going to be destroyed, never to be regathered again until 1948. They're about to be taken, 10 tribes taken by Assyria out of the land. They're going to be pillaged. They're going to be wiped out for their disobedience. And it's these two kings that are on the throne right about now when Isaiah is prophesying to Ahaz and he's saying, learn from what's happening here. These guys get, uh, David. these are all David's ancestors all the way down to Jesus. These guys will get the south, Judah, just two tribes, will get 136 years to see if they will submit to God and obey him. But they don't. 
136 years later, they will come to an end as well. And then they will be regathered a little bit. But uh, this, is, this is what's going on when Isaiah prophesies about Christmas. So even though the nation has been plunged into wicked idolatry, they're weeping, reaping what I should say. They are reaping what they have sown, a dismal, gloomy punishment. And even though Judah has followed wicked King Ahaz, Ahaz, particularly horrible, why? He's sacrificing his children into the fire of, uh, to appease the god Molech. And he's encouraging the Israelites to do that. He's changing the temple worship in Jerusalem to uh, Syrian pagan uh, practices. He, he's really bad news. But, but you have to understand that even though he's doing these things and Israel is following and the north is falling forever, nevertheless, a light has dawned. Do you see the grace of God saying in, in, in this place? Let me show you a map here. So he's saying, here, here's Zebulun and Naphtali. <laughs> Surprise. He's saying, a light has dawned. It will, the light of the world is coming. 700 years from that time, this is the land that took the brunt. This is where Assyria comes in from the north and devastates this whole region. So Zebulun and Naphtali is where, hello, Nazareth and Capernaum. Jesus was raised, the light of the world, God in human form, was raised here in Naphtali and Zebulun. And then he moves and makes his home here and spends pretty much three and a half years here. These are, this is where all his teaching, all the light of the world, God in a human body, everything he did, all his miracles, just about probably 90% of what Jesus did as the light of the world, he did in this region. And this was the region that had been exiled and taken captive and uh, bore the worst brunt. This was the gloom. This was the place of, of the valley of the shadow of death. There was no hope. There was just dismal gloom and doom. And he says, listen, even though you, God humbled you because of your sins, Zebulun and Naphtali, from you a light will appear there. And what are the odds that the light is going to be here? Exactly where he said 700 years later, he's going to be the light of the world, gets raised here, raised, uh, lives here, and does all his uh, miracles and teaching there, truly. So nevertheless, he would go back to the verse. Nevertheless, even though there'll be no more gloom in the past, that's where he humbled you because of your sins. In the future, that's going to be place. Galilee of the Gentiles. Gentiles because Galilee's on the border and there were a lot of Gentiles who lived there. By the way of the sea along the Jordan, make no mistake about it. They have seen a great light and a great light, the light of the world. That is just Amazing. What are the odds there? And of course, that is quoted in when Jesus moves from um, Nazareth to Capernaum in Mark chapter 4 and begins to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew quotes, as we read tonight, from this passage and says he moved from Capernaum to, he moved from uh, Nazareth to Capernaum to fulfill these, this scripture, and so just awesome. There are 300 of those. There's 300 uh, specific prophecies that, that say exactly where he's going to be born. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says from Bethlehem, and that he would spend most of his time in a certain area, but there's 300 of them. You know, nevertheless, God is going to shine the light. So, you know, what's your story? What's your nevertheless? We all have one. You know, Paul said, I was a blasphemer and a violent man, a persecutor of the church. Nevertheless, I received grace and mercy from God. God likes to just take us, take a place that's been downtrodden and gloom and doom and hopelessness and, and bring a light and have us receive it 
and be restored. Verses three through five. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel in the fire. A lot of people just skip over these verses and just want to get to wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Uh, but this will help you really appreciate uh, the words that will be spoken about the Messiah. So he says, okay, a great light dawns with great effects. You've enlarged the nation. Now, in other words, the people of God are going to, 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 be, to grow from the nation of Israel. Uh, God will open a door to the Gentiles, and Gentiles just means the nations. So in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord spoke to Abraham, who is the, the father of the Jews, and he said, through you, I'll bless all the nations of the world. So the Lord was going to make the Jewish nation a favored nation, but his, his sights were always on the world. So he was going to use the Jews as a door to bring the Messiah in and through that door to reach the world. So uh, the people of God will be enlarged, even though they were being diminished there and taken away into captivity um, yeah, enlarge, you've enlarged the nation. Let me show you Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. After this, John is seeing in heaven at the end of the age. And there before me was a great multitude that nobody could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. The Lamb is code for Jesus who sacrificed his life for your sins, so he's called the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches, a sign of worship royalty. Uh, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. He says, uh, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Yeah. No man can count. Starts with Abraham who believed God. And God counted that as righteous. And then what does Paul end up saying in Romans chapter 4? He says, anybody who believes God in the same way that Abraham did, really, in a spiritual sense, is a child of Abraham and part of God's chosen nation, right? So he's enlarged the plan to go from the Jews to the world to whosoever will, you see? So you've enlarged the nation. And then he says, and with an enlargement, with more people getting saved and becoming uh, the people of God, yeah, he compares the joy uh, that we have as being saved with workers in a harvest who, who get to enjoy the, the fruit of their labors and the joy that uh, is celebrated with, uh, in those seasons, uh, like getting a huge bonus at payday or the locker room after Super Bowl win, you know, um, this kind of joy. One writer put it this way. Yes, he has increased their joy. Does the heart know any greater joy than to be saved? Sins forgiven, the grave defeated, eternal life granted, and to be able to enjoy the love of God our Father in perfect, uninterruptible peace forever. Yeah, you've increased their joy. Uh, verse four sort of elaborates there and says, you know, it was a hopeless, terrible predicament with all hope is gone, uh, uh, but you broke off their chains. You, you blew apart the stocks that held our feet. Um, you obliterated the oppressor's power over us. You know, we were like beasts of burden, it says there, destined for slaughter, and you took that yoke that was on our shoulders and you snapped it in two to set us free. But of course, the worst burden that really Isaiah is talking about is the burden of sin and separation from God and guilt and condemnation and death and judgment. So there's a joy unspeakable, full of glory when we realize what we've been saved from and how we've been saved. And furthermore, here it shows you 
This will be a deliverance that's way above the ability of man to achieve. So uh, he brings up Gideon. Now, Gideon in Judges 6 through 8 is a great story. And he says, it reminds me, Jesus coming into the world and defeating the devil and conquering death. It just reminiscent of God working through an unlikely man, uh, Gideon. And so you'll remember Gideon was up against 135,000. He only had 30,000 troops. And the Lord spoke to Gideon. And first of all, Gideon was this scrawny, you know, unlikely, kind of fearful kind of guy uh, who God chose to lead these 30,000 soldiers. And um, just to make a point that he doesn't need our help. Right, So uh, Gideon goes up against 135,000. He's got 30,000 guys. The Lord appears to him and says, you got 30,000 guys? He goes, yeah, they're not enough. He goes, actually, I need you to lose some because I don't want Israel to think it was because of their great strength that they have a victory. So even though you're outnumbered 135,000 to 30,000, I want you to drop down to 10, 10,000. So at 10,000... Gideon's like, oh, no, what am I going to do? He goes, yeah, exactly. You have too many. You still have too many guys. So he separates them down to 300 guys. And, and the text kind of shows that they're not the 300 guys that are really savvy. You know, he takes the guys who, he says, separate them out. The ones who lap the water uh, like a dog, those will, those will be yours. All right, so you're going to get the lappers, all right? So everybody was just acting like an animal and drinking water like a dog. He goes, okay, you're, you're good to go. <laughs> we need you. So 300 of them go up again. So these 300 guys don't even engage in the fight. You know, they blow a, a trumpet and smash a jar, and, and God causes the 135,000 to turn on themselves. And God just says, listen, you know, what Isaiah is saying is the Lord didn't need Gideon's help or Israel's help to defeat Midian. And in the same way, God's going to take an unlikely source like a child, a human child that appears to be human. He is fully human, but there's a little secret about this child. And we're going to talk about that. And so <clears throat> this verse here, about the warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. He's saying, when this Messiah comes, he's gonna break the yoke of sin and oppression and death and it's gonna be a permanent peace. Every warrior's boot. He's saying soldiers will not be needing boots anymore and, and um, blood-stained military fatigues will be ending up in the same bonfire. So, trust me on this. If, if the soldiers don't have boots or clothes to wear, you can be assured the fighting is over. He's saying, this coming Messiah is going to end all strife, all tyranny, and there'll be no more war. There'll be no more boots on the ground. There'll be no more stained, bloody military uh, fatigues anymore. They'll be in the bonfire. And you know what else is in the bonfire? The aircraft carriers and the tanks and the guns. They're all in God's bonfire because when this Messiah comes, it's over. No more of that stuff. That's what this verse is saying. Um, for all war will be eliminated by the one who is coming. Uh, one writer put it this way. Isaiah is looking ahead to the goal of salvation. The light that dawns doesn't stop until his kingdom comes. And all tyranny, all evil, all corruption, all things fearful are forever done away with. God wipes away every tear from his people's eyes. And that's what that verse is about. Okay, verse six. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so, no takers, a light is dawned. Two, a great deliverance wrought. Number three, a child is born, a son is given. Now, it's so funny because here's the answer to the world's problems. And in Hebrew, 
it's emphasized that he's a child by putting child in the first word of the sentence. So child, here we go. What, but what child is this who laid at rest on Mary's lap, lay sleeping? Well, it's a child, but no ordinary child. It's a child with two natures. Can you see that? A human child is born to a human woman, but a son is given, the son of God. He has two natures. Uh, let's, let's let Gabriel explain it to us as he did to the one who participated in this. First to Mary. There's a child, there's a human child, and there's a son. So first to Mary. Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You're going to conceive and give birth to a son. There's the son. And you're going to call him Jesus. He'll be great and be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So he's related to David. He's a human being. His blood related through Mary, who's related to King David. Jesus is royalty through Mary to David as a human child. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. Forever's the part where we get into the son given. <laughs> his kingdom will never end. All right. So he has to be more than a child now. He has to be a son given, right? How will this be? Because I'm a virgin. I'm not qualified really to have a child. Uh, the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One born will be called the Son of God. Okay, so what did uh, Romans say? I like what Romans says. Romans chapter one says, regarding his son, as to his human nature, a descendant of King David, as to his divine nature, the son of God. You see, Jesus is called the God-man. Then to Joseph, it's, it's reiterated, the, the dual nature. Joseph, son of David, do not freak out. Mary, take her home and get married because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, give him the name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah two chapters ago, chapter seven and verse 14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, so, so what do we have here? Well, he's being born of a woman. He's got to be a man. He's got to be human, right? He looks human. He's, he's coming from a, a woman. But he's going to live forever, reign forever, and, and, and he comes from the conception of the Holy Spirit. God with us is what we call him. And so we see the dual nature of the Lord there. Thank you for that. You can go back to our scripture. John chapter one and verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So now we know the word is God. And then in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh, became a human being. So you see the two dual nature of Jesus. He is the God man. And notice the aim of the God-man here. And the government will be on his shoulders. The aim of this child's destiny is to take over. The earth will come under new management. That's what it means to have the government will be his responsibility. The affairs of mankind will be upon him and his responsibility. I like what one writer said about this verse. That Jesus is even now ruling and reigning, sovereignly orchestrating and bringing the world into full subjection to himself and the purposes of God cannot be denied. Yet one day, a visible reigning Christ will sit upon a visible glorious throne, governing the world in, few, in full view of all its happy inhabitants. What did Jesus tell his disciples at the end before he ascended up? All power, all power, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This child, a child born, a son given. And what are we supposed to be praying? He said, pray thy kingdom come. That government, that ruling of the Lord 
shall come. Now here are these beautiful four descriptions of, of this Messiah's character, work, and the nature. We already know he must be God. I mean, we already figured that out. But I mean, if there's any doubt, it's one of the titles here. Let's start with Wonderful Counselor. The first word there really means wonder, like amazement. It, it means wonder-filled, really, uh, full of wonder, jaw-dropping, breathtaking, awe-inducing marvel. This human conceived of the Holy Spirit who is God in a baby's body incarnated. What a marvel. What a wonder. In fact, uh, the, the scholars say that this wonder here, he is a wonder through and through, and wonder is the umbrella word that which all the other uh, titles will fall under. The radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, Hebrews chapter one and verse three, all poured into a human baby. That's a marvel. That's what he's saying. It's just... It's just a wonder when you start thinking about God in, in, in behind brown eyes and, and, and a guy who's making wood and making a living and, and being a carpenter. He's, he's wonder-filled. Counselor, well, if he's going to take on the correction of the world and the government be on his shoulders, he's going to have to be smart. He's going to have all the wisdom uh, in Christ all the treasures of the wisdom and the knowledge of the universe are hidden. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3. I love when Paul's contemplating about God's sovereignty and how he's working all things out according to his will. The end of Romans uh, chapter 11, Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths his mental ways beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Who has ever been his counselor? Is my favorite line there. I mean, the Lord has never said, hey, listen, I don't know what to do. I'm in a jam here. You know, can somebody help me out? You know, Gabriel, what would you do if you were, you know, he does, he's got it all together. He's just this jaw dropping, uh, eyes wide open, heart-stopping wonder, and, and we're going to stand before this one who spoke and the worlds came into being. He's a wonderful counselor. And then, you know, you've got something complicated going on in your life. I know somebody who's just amazingly smart. He mapped out the universe he, he designed the human body. He knows what's going on in a cell because it was his idea. You got something, you got a big dilemma? Who, who are you going to with that? You, you've got this wonder-filled counselor at your disposal. He said, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask. And God, God will freely give. And it says, without finding fault, which means he... He, he won't check you out to qualify you to give you the wisdom that you're looking for. In other words, you can ask for wisdom without saying, without feeling, well, I haven't been, you know, having my quiet time and I'm not exactly perfect and I haven't done this. You just need to ask and God will give you the wisdom that you need without finding fault with your life just for the sake of blessing you with how to solve that complicated dilemma of yours. Next, mighty God. I wish it were easy, like, you know, you could just show uh, somebody, you know, where does it say that Jesus is God in the Bible? Well, here it is, mighty God right here. But every time you do that, they just change the subject or it never works. You always think, aha, I got you right here. This is where Jesus is called the Messiah, a child, we know this is talking about Jesus, and he's mighty God. You know, if the Jews could have just read that more, you know, they were supposed to be reading their Bibles. The Pharisees were supposed to be teaching them in the temple. The Pharisees knew this verse. And so when Jesus was doing God things, you know, and saying, I and the Father are one. And when he said that in John chapter 10, they picked up stones to stone him. That's the famous line that I always 
talk about where he says, hey, uh, hey, while they're getting stones and they're getting ready to kill him, he says, hey, for which of my good works are you stoning me for? They said, we're not stoning you because of your good works. We're stoning you because you, a mere man, make yourself equal with God. He could have said, read your Bible, Pharisees. And it's not the only place either. Not the only place. He shall be called mighty God. I don't know who else we were expecting to save us, to take a look at the world and the condition it's in, to save us from death and evil and the grave and and diabolical evil spirits out there. Who else did we think was going to have to save the day? Some prophet? Some rabbi? It would have to be God and God alone. Who else is going to turn this place into paradise? That's what he said. I'm going to turn this place into Eden-like paradise with the government on his shoulders. Who else were we thinking was coming? Of course. Who else can walk on water, open the eyes of the blind, tell a hurricane to simmer down? And it obeys after the hurricane simmered down, after he said, peace, be still, <laughs> the disciples looked at each other and said, who, who is he? <laughs> it says that. And they're like, uh, you know, who just can say, hey, you, wind, stop. And the wind goes. Whoosh. And they, the, the guys are rocking. They're wet. They're kind of seasick. They're like, oh, <laughs> who's on board here, you know? Who else can say, hey, Lazarus, I know you've been dead for four days and Mary is saying your body's decaying already. Don't open the tomb. His body stinks. The King James has the best. It says he stinketh. (laughs) That's the best, isn't it? Who else can just say, excuse me, everybody, didn't I tell you I was the resurrection and the life and that, that anyone who believes in me would live forever? Didn't I say that to you? Roll away the rock. Lazarus, get out here. Who else? Is that a guy? Is that a prophet? Is that a good religious teacher? That is the radiance of God's glory poured into a human body. So that when Philip says, hey, Lord, it'd be nice to have a glimpse of God. He says, have I been with you so long still you don't get it? Who do you think's been opening the eyes of people born blind? Who do you think was casting out the devil there? Well, it's just not an ordinary man. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Wow. Mighty God with brown eyes and a Jewish mom who eats dinner, made the universe wonder-filled. That's a wow. That's a wow. I don't know if you need a friend in a high place right now, or you could use somebody with some, could pull some strings for you, you know? Uh, I know somebody, and one of his titles is Mighty God, and he said, uh, ask me anything, just ask, that could make you joyful. I don't know if you remember this everlasting father is kind of the counter the mighty God thing, so that you'll understand that he eternally exists to father. That's the Hebrew understanding, is is that not only is he the father of eternity, but he always exists as a father. His heart is to reconcile you and for you to um, be parented by him, to take care of you. He's Papa God, Romans chapter eight. The spirit in our hearts allows us to call God this God, this mighty God, the God who speaks planets into existence, Papa. You know, I say some strange things to people, and let me tell you one more. Uh, some guy was bragging about who he was related to. Was it some job I was at? And he's like, you know, I'm related to this guy. I didn't even know who it was, you know, because I don't watch a lot of movies and whatever. I wasn't impressed. And so everybody was like, oh, wow. So I turned to him and I said, hey, have you ever noticed the sun rising in the sky? He goes, yeah. Like, how about at night and the moon comes out, you know? How about the stars and the constellations? Aren't they cool? He goes, yeah, they're cool. I go, 
my dad. He made them. He made them. <laughs> he made them, you know. And he goes, okay. Let's kind of get that look on his face. Like, okay, let's continue working now. Yeah, you know, come on. You're really, you get to call him Papa. Just let that set on you for a little bit here. You know, I mean... Do you ever feel like nobody's watching out over you? And gee whiz, I wish I had a, a, a really good father figure. I really wish I had somebody who just was rooting for me all the time. And, and just anytime you go to a dad, a good dad, a, the perfect father, he's always got the right words to say. And he's warm and caring and nurturing. And you just can't do anything too bad with the, I mean, the love there. Do you need that? Right there. Finally, in the list, and one verse to go after that, Prince of Peace. So, yeah, after Armageddon, after seven years of all hell breaking loose on the earth, the last seven years that seem to be uh, closing in on us, uh, there will be peace. And, but uh, that's not really what it's talking about here. Uh, the curse will be lifted, and here's, here's uh, another prophecy from Isaiah. He will judge between the nations. He'll settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat, beat their swords into plowshares uh, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So this is one part of being Prince of Peace because after Armageddon, uh, it's gonna be smooth sailing with Christ on the throne. Uh, but really, the, and even the animal kingdom it really chills out. You know, the leopard lays down with the goat, the wolf lies down with the lamb, um, and the lion with the calf, or the lion with the lamb. There are a couple uh, things like that. And so God lifts the curse there. So there's a lot of peace. But the cessation of war isn't the most important thing. It's the cause of war human sin that he's going to deal with. So I like what Paul says in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Uh, to the Colossians, Paul writes this one verse. He canceled the record that contained the charges against us. He took it and destroyed it by nailing it to the cross. God made peace with us. Oftentimes it says, hey, do you want to uh, make peace with God? Well, you didn't do anything to make peace with God. You've done a lot to do other things, but not to make peace with God. God has made peace with you, and whosoever will can come to him and accept that peace. Um, and that's the peace that he's come to give. It's the peace that we all hunger for, reconciliation with God, the peace that everything between me and God is, is okay and settled. Let me give you this story. Ernest Hemingway has a short story called uh, The Capital of the World. And in that story, there's a father and a teenage son that are estranged. And the son's name is Paco. And he had wronged his dad. And as a re result of his shame and guilt, he ran away from home. Now, in the story, the father searches high and low all over Spain for Paco, and he can't find him. In a last desperate attempt, uh, he places an ad in the paper. And in the paper, it reads, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montaña. Noon Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. So on Tuesday at noon, the father arrives at the hotel, and he couldn't believe his eyes. An entire squadron of police officers had been called out in an attempt to keep order among hundreds of young boys named Paco. Yeah, that's a good one. It'll get you right there, doesn't it? Our father, the Prince of Peace, um, put an ad in the paper. It's called the Bible. And he's calling out to all his estranged children. Hey, Paco, Juan, Joe, Debbie, Dave, John. Hey, all is forgiven. Come on home. Come on home. That's the message there. Prince of peace. That's what he wants. He wants to give us peace. And the peace that means anything. If you want peace, you're going to have to go to the Prince of Peace. There's no, no way around that. Last verse there, verse 7. 
of the increase of his government and peace. There'll be no end. He'll reign on David's throne forever, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Awesome. So uh, number five, an everlasting kingdom. So most kingdoms really grow through war, but God's kingdom will not grow that way. It will be only one of peace. Uh, not only is there no end of that peace, but look at this. It will, have you ever wondered what heaven's going to be like? It, it gives you a little hint here. There'll be no end and of the increase of his influence, God's influence and peace. There'll be no end. There'll be an increase always. In other words, every moment from the time you see his face, every moment will be better than the last moment, always. Of his government, of his influence, of his peace, uh, and the increase of it, there'll be no end diminishing of God's glory, only an ever-increasing amount of peace and joy and excitement. God has ever-increasing joy and pleasure in store, as Psalm 16 says, for those who believe. Now, two words here I want you to take a look at, okay? Because justice and righteousness is really what characterizes the world that's coming. Uh, you are on a collision course with that world, and that world is going to take over. And there are two words to describe it here. One is justice. Nothing shady, corrupt, or unjust there. Uh, no one gets away with anything because no one wants to get away with anything there because we've been changed. No manipulations, no fraud, no crime, no taking advantage of anyone. No rioting, no looting, no murdering, none of that stuff. It's a kingdom established by justice. Revelation 22 says this about heaven. Outside the city, city, this heaven's called a city sometimes. Outside the city are the dogs the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie. Jesus coming, he's gonna take over. There's gonna be a new kingdom, a new world. And in that new world, there are gonna be boundaries and outside of the new world or where evildoers will be perishing. Now, the second word there in your text is righteousness. Uh, the characteristic of this heaven, uh, this, this world that we're going to be a part of, there's only good, kindness and love, goodwill and peace. You know, I've had people say, and I'm sure you have, you know, I don't even want to live forever anyway. You tell them, hey, you can live forever, eternal life. And they're like, who wants eternal life? Listen, the... In, you want eternal life the way God, after the seven years of tribulation, God renews the earth. And it becomes like Eden again. He makes many changes. It's going to be a really nice place to live. And he's going to change the hearts of the people who inhabit it. We, the church, will already be changed. We will be in our glorified bodies at that time. And uh, the humans who survived the tribulation, they will be changed because they'll be able to live the whole millennial kingdom time period. And so, it, it, and it's all about justice and righteousness. So yes, sir, you will want to live forever in a place like that and in a body like that. That's the righteousness. Let me close with Revelation 21. I don't know if I have that one, but I'll read it to you. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb of God, Jesus, is its light. The nations of the earth will walk in its light, so there's a world going on, and the rulers of the world will come and bring their glory to it. Its gates never close at the end of the day, because there's no night, and all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter no one who practices shameful idolatry or dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, how in the world is all of this going to happen? I need that last verse there. 
How is that going to happen? God swears by himself that he will carry all of this through because of the burning passion, the red hot coal in his belly. That's what zeal there is. This is the red hot flame in God, not to rest until this thing is accomplished, that every last promise and every last word is going to be fulfilled. How is it going to be done? By God himself and the burning passionate commitment to carry it out. Why? Because he's a father and he wants to reconcile the world to himself. He wants a kingdom where there's righteousness and justice. This world is sick and twisted and dark and dismal and just ready for the junk heap. Amen? Yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody would argue with that. It's a one messed up planet, all right? But there's somebody in heaven called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, who's got a burning coal in his chest to get this thing accomplished. And you know what? The 300 prophecies about the coming the first time on the money and the 2,000 prophecies of him coming a second time to bring him and his glorious kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of justice, a kingdom that's always increasing in peace and godliness, always, forever and ever, with us there with him together forever, secure in our Father's love. That's what Christmas is all about. Amen? I felt like saying, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. <laughs> you know, the end, Linus said, okay, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love. We are so happy to have Christmas in our heart every day of the year. Lord, every moment after being born again, we've just been, just love you, Lord, and your wonderful promises to us. Thank you, God, for coming for us and preparing a place for us and keeping your word. And thank you for the zeal in your heart to accomplish all that you have promised. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. Let's stand and sing the closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.